In your worship folder today is a sheet that looks like this, and uh, we just want to draw attention to it for a moment. Uh, we're trying something new at this teaching series, and that is to give you a place on one side to take notes on the message and uh, fill in the blank so that you can remember when you get home some of the points that uh, have been made. But also on the back is a, is a guide to help you with um, your personal devotional time, or if you are part of a life group, perhaps even uh, using this as a, as a study guide for, with your life group. And so that has... Um, we're going to try this for several weeks, and uh, we'd love to have your input and know if it's helping or uh, working for you. And uh, try, uh, we, we're, just, we're just a church that keeps trying new things, but uh, we're, we're glad to uh, be able to provide more resources for your own discipleship uh, that make uh, Sunday uh, travel throughout the week, not just uh, go home and forget about it. And uh, so we hope that you'll use that. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances in your life? And it seems like those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances in your life and it seems like those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon? When that question was asked to a group of adults, a man at one of the tables looked up and said, I hope someone can give me some help because I've wrestled with this issue for 30 years. The ironic thing is this man gives off all the signs of being outwardly successful and reasonably happy with his life. And he is a respected person by his peers and highly regarded by people who know him in the old fashioned sense of the word, he's a very good man. But he later confided in the group that for 30 years he has wondered if he made the right career choice. When he was younger, he thought seriously about entering into ministry, and in some degree that thought has never left his mind, and now he wonders, did I somehow make a mistake all those years ago? Did I miss out on God's purpose in my life? But my mind also wonders to a number of conversations I've had over the years with people who are dealing with a variety of personal and relationship issues, like people who are single and want to be married, but they just haven't found the right person yet, or people who have experienced a divorce, wanted or unwanted, and now feel themselves in a world that's set up for families and not singles or people who would like to have children but for some reason can't, which in turn often brings great pain and loneliness and sometimes a sense of guilt or feelings of failure, people who are in a marriage that just isn't working, people who are in a job that has become intolerable, people who are out of work and can't find that next position. See, all of these scenarios and many more are real, and in some point in our life, most of us find ourselves in a circumstance that we know isn't going to change anytime soon. So how do we handle it? How do we cope? We're also too well aware that life has a way of turning on a dime. We go to bed thinking that all is well, and the next day we might be fighting for our life. We don't necessarily expect bad things to happen, but sometimes they do. Life isn't always fair, is it? Against that backdrop, I want us to consider again the question I just asked you a few moments ago. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances in your life 
And it seems as if those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon. There are many answers to that question, but one stands out as being of great importance. When we deal with bad circumstances that don't seem likely to change anytime soon or maybe even ever, there are many things we might do, but there is only one thing that we must do. We must go back and find out where God is in the middle of all of that frustration. See, good theology can save us when nothing else will help. This principle is important, and here's why. We know that good theology can save our souls, but in times of trouble, we, if we know the truth and if we remember the truth, what we know and remember can save us from ultimate despair. So exactly what kinds of truths are we talking about? Well, here's a short list. God is good. God is faithful. God knows what is best for us. He is quick to forgive us. He never leaves us. His mercy endures forever. He makes no mistakes. God has a purpose for us. God is working out his plan for us. God loves us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And Jesus is alive today, and someday he will return to earth to restore his creation. I've learned through the years that God is faithful. We are not always faithful to him, but he is faithful to us. And we've tried to teach that message to our kids as they were growing up. And I've shared that message with every church where I go. That message is good theology, and it has the power to save us from despair when hard times come into our life. With that, we come to our text for this whole teaching series. If you know anything about Jeremiah 29 at all, you probably know it because of one particular verse. It is a verse that has given hope and comfort to many people through the years. It has been sung, memorized, quoted, repeated in prayer, and often cross-stitched and hung on the kitchen wall so it won't be forgotten. And it's verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. However, today's message in this whole series is not primarily about that promise, as wonderful as it may be, but I mention it because many people know this verse and only this verse, and they know very little about the background of Jeremiah 29. However, when we know something about this entire chapter, we discover some profound insights into how God deals with us, his people, especially when we find ourselves in difficult situations that don't seem likely to change anytime soon. Since that reality applies to, to all of us some of the time and to some of us Seemingly all the time, we should take a closer look at what God is saying, and in order to do that, we need some background. The year is 597 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar has led the army of Babylon. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. He has led his army to the gates of Jerusalem, and there the Babylonians made quick work of the army of Judah, capturing the city and capturing the wicked king Jehoiakim who was bound in bronze shackles and taken off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then looted the temple built by Solomon, taking from it articles of silver and gold. Jehoiakim was replaced by Jehoiachin, who 
reigned only three months. Nebuchadnezzar had him brought to Babylon also along with more articles and, and gold and, of gold and silver from the temple. And approximately 10,000 people were taken in this captivity and this deportation. Second Kings chapter 24 says he took the artisans, the craftsmen, the royal officials, and all the leading men of the land. Only the poorest of the poor were left behind. Meanwhile, a man by the name of Zedekiah became king in Jerusalem. He was a puppet king put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, and he reigned 11 more years until Nebuchadnezzar decided to deal with the Jews once and for all. In 588 B.C., he set up a siege against Jerusalem that lasted two years while famine spread through the city, and the city finally fell in 586 B.C., and this time Nebuchadnezzar totally destroyed everything. He tore down the city walls, he burned the temple, he burned every other important building. He left the city in ruins. He took whatever he wanted, he destroyed everything else. He captured Zedekiah, killed his sons before his eyes, poked his eyes out, and then marched him in bronze shackles to Babylon. He also took another large group of captives with him. As you may have guessed, the Babylonians were not nice people. They were the most powerful nation on earth at the time, and their armies were ruthless. After conquering a city, they would sometimes put a pile of skulls in the plaza of the city as a warning against anyone else who might rebel against them. There were actually three deportations from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first happened in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel, if you read the Old Testament book of Daniel, and Daniel and his friends were deported. The second happened in 597, and that is the background for Jeremiah 29. And then the third and final one happened in 586 B.C. when the city was turned into a wasteland. There's one other aspect of this story that we need to consider, and that is the question, why? Why did it happen? And the answer is simple. It happened because the people of Judah turned away from the Lord. They ignored God's word. They forgot his promises. They worshiped idols. They took lightly their holy calling. They willingly followed after evil. They took advantage of the poor and the weak. They trafficked in violence. They acted as if God wasn't paying any attention. And that was their ultimate mistake. For generations, the people had turned away from the Lord, and to make matters worse, they learned nothing from the sad experience of the ten tribes called Israel, which were of the northern kingdom that were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And though it could have been argued that the northern tribes went further into idolatry, Judah's sin was even greater because the people saw what was happening to the northern tribes, and they forgot God anyway. So God sent them prophets whom they ignored and sometimes killed, and God gave them good kings. And when they had good kings, they seemed to follow the Lord, but when they had bad kings, they turned back to their evil ways. And finally, the time came when God said, enough's enough. And that's when he raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against his own people and that pagan king unwittingly served God's purposes by attacking Jerusalem and destroying the temple and ransacking the city and taking thousands into captivity. And all of that lies behind the story of Jer Jeremiah 29. It's a pivotal chapter in our quest to understand how God deals with his people, people like us even. We can summarize the background this way. God calls his people to holiness 
But in this case, they ignored his call and went their own way. God warned them over and over again of coming judgment. He sent prophet after prophet, but the people paid no attention. So God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, who attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it, and a great many Jews ended up in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. It's now 597 B.C., and a large group of Jews are in Babylon, and it's impossible for us to fully understand how they felt about all that's happened to them. To them, Babylon was the center of evil in the world. They hated everything the Babylonians stood for. They hated them for their cruelty. They hated them for their violence. They hated them for their idolatry. They hated them for attacking the city of God, Jerusalem. And 11 years later, they would hate them even more for destroying the temple because the temple was God's dwelling place on earth with his people. They hated being so far from home, and because God had said 70 years, the Jews in exile knew that most of them would never see their homeland again. Psalm 137, 1 through 3, adds that they were so miserable in Babylon that they hung their harps up, their instruments, in a willow tree and refused to sing the songs of God. Here's what it says, beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. It's kind of like one of those old Western movies, you know, where the bad guys capture someone and they shoot at their feet to make them dance. Trying to, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing the Babylonians were doing to these exiles. They humiliated them day and night. And this captivity of the Jews raises enormous theological questions for us. Where was God in all of this? How could he, how could he let the bad guys take the good guys into captivity? How could he have allowed the temple in Jerusalem, which was his dwelling place, to be destroyed? And most of all, how could he use the Babylonians to punish the Jews? when the Babylonians were 10 times, maybe even 100 times worse. There's a book in the Old Testament devoted entirely to those questions, and it's the book of Habakkuk. Uh, What do you do when God doesn't seem to come through for you? Or when he doesn't seem to live up to your expectations? And if you want some good side reading to this whole teaching series, look up the Old Testament book of Habakkuk and read it along with it. But the answer to all of this is pretty simple. The real problem is not God living up to our expectations. It's us who didn't live up to his expectations. And when that happens, the scripture says judgment is not far away. So let me pause here to mention something we often have to learn the hard way. And that is that the worst wounds that we experience in life sometimes are self-inflicted, aren't they? Rarely will anybody hurt us as bad as we can hurt ourselves. There is no pain like the pain of making a stupid mistake or saying something we shouldn't have said or hurting the people that we love the most. Maybe breaking their trust or violating our conscience or repeatedly doing something wrong and saying I'm sorry and then doing it all over again, promising to do better and only do worse. Instead, failing to live up to our own standards and disappointing the people who are depending on us. 
That is the ragged edge of pain that keeps us awake at night, makes us toss and turn. That's the load of guilt that overwhelms us with sorrow and makes us feel like at times we've just blown everything. Now I know of no pain greater than the pain of looking at the ruins of what might have been and knowing that we are the ones who are responsible for the wreckage. And that is precisely how the Jews felt in Babylon. They were rejected, humiliated, trapped, judged, condemned, forgotten. They had become a laughingstock among the nations, just as the prophets had predicted. And it's against this agonizing backdrop that we come at last to Jeremiah 29. The only other thing we need to know is that this is a letter. It is a, this chapter contains a letter that Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem to encourage the dejected exiles in Babylon. And his letter turns out to be a personal message from God to his people. And what a message it is. So with that in mind, I want to make just one point today. And that is that God takes responsibility for sending his people to Babylon. And this is a huge truth. We can't overstate its importance. Everything God is going to say depends on grasping this one central truth. Why were they judged because of their sin? Who captured them and took them away? It was the Babylonians. Who sent them into Babylon? God did. The Babylonians thought they were doing it all by themselves. After all, they were pagans and they weren't consciously trying to do God's work for him. And yet in Jeremiah 25, 8, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Wow, that's mind-blowing because at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar didn't even believe in the God of the Bible. He worshiped his own gods. But God says, it doesn't matter. He's my servant. And look what God says in Jeremiah 29, 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Did you get that? He has sent into exile. Now there's a warning here, but there's also a ray of hope in these words. God will not be mocked, and if we sin, there's going to be punishment. And God will take personal responsibility to do that. He may even use our enemies as instruments to bring us down. That's the warning, but God does not forget his children even when we sin, and that's the good news. The Jews had been taught from birth that God dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. If we want to find God, they, has, they said, go to the temple and worship God there. And now that they were hundreds of miles away from home in a pagan land, separated from their own past, knowing most of them would never return to Jerusalem, and even if they did, the temple wasn't there anymore, it was destroyed. And it is into that moment of despair that God speaks a word of hope. I was with you in Jerusalem. I sent you into exile. I am with you even now. God says to his hurting children, I don't leave you, not even for a moment. I said I would punish you, and I did, but I have not forsaken my people, and I never will. Strange as it may seem, the Jews ultimately were in Babylon because that's where they needed to be. Their rebellion was so deep that they had to be removed from the land of Judah in order for that sin to be broken. Only radical surgery could remove the cancer of idolatry. We might say that their exile to Babylon, terrible as it seemed, was really a severe mercy from the Lord. There was no other way to get their attention. 
In, in Jeremiah 24, 6 and 7, God offers a wonderful promise to his dejected children. He says, I will watch over and care for them, and I will bring them back here again. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me wholeheartedly. And it's as if God is saying, I know you think I hate you, but I, but I don't. I have a wonderful plan for you, and that wonderful plan begins in Babylon. It didn't seem so wonderful at the moment, but it was. It's better to be in the will of God in Babylon than to be out of the will of God in Jerusalem. So let me come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances in your life and it seems as if those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon? Part of the answer is that God doesn't look at our circumstances the same way that you and I do. We don't like where we are and we wish we were somewhere else doing something else and we may be in a bad place in part because of some own, our own foolish choices. But then God says, you are where you are today because I put you there. You are where you are in life today because I put you there. That's huge. That's the whole point of this story. You are where you are right now in life because God wants you to be there. He, if he wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. And if even if it's a painful place, it is better to be there and to know that God is with you than to live in luxury somewhere without God. And I told you earlier that good theology can save us. If we are in our own Babylon today, whatever that might be for you, what you desperately need is some good theology. You need a reason to have hope for the future. And I remind you that God is faithful. Maybe we haven't always been faithful to him, but God promises to be faithful to us, and this is God's word. As soon as your time in Babylon is up, and not a day before, I'll show, I'll show up and take care of you as I promised, and I'll bring you back home. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. So be encouraged. You are a child of God. And if you feel trapped today in some set of circumstances, know that you are not abandoned. God wants us to discover that we can worship him even in Babylon. Well, that's only the beginning of Jeremiah 29. We're going to discover much, much more in the weeks ahead. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that continues to breathe life into us. Your word revives the dry bones in our lives. As we go through the seasons of our life, seasons of discouragement and struggle especially, we need to be reassured that your plan for us is a good plan. Your plan is to redeem all that is evil and wrong and to bring about good. So grant us willing hearts to obey all that you would speak to us. 
this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.